Psalm 74, a plea for relief from oppressors, a contemplation of Asaph. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Let's pray. Father, I just want to speak the mighty name of Jesus over my brothers and sisters in this room. And I pray, God, if there is a sanctuary of sorts that has been broken down in their home, in a relationship, at work, I pray, God, that this scripture would remind them that you are the God of the impossible, that you are a God who restores, you're a God who brings about reconciliation through the mighty and powerful work of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we're reminded through the scripture that you are the one who brings up the sun. You are the one that sets boundaries of ocean waters. You are the one who has created those mountains for my brothers who are climbing them even as we speak. We pray a blessing over them, God. We ask that you would protect them. God, you are the one who has given us the very voice by which we can praise you. And it is evident this morning that your spirit is alive and it is doing a mighty work. I pray, God, that in that same spirit that you would cause us to lean into your word by listening to what you would have for us to receive through Pastor Chris. Anoint him, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be diving into Psalm 74. This is the last um, 
maybe not in the last psalm, but this is the last part of the psalm series this summer. In the next three weeks, we're going to be diving into prayer. At the end of every summer, we want to do um, three weeks just on prayer, getting ourselves ready for the fall and, and the schedules that come up and, and the repetition of life that happens many times um, in the fall. But we are finishing with Psalm 74. And one of the reasons that we chose Psalm 74 is because we have been seeing David chased all around the place, haven't we? We've been watching David get chased in the mountains of En We see David getting chased by his son Absalom. And so today, we're diving into a different author, a different author of the Psalms, a man named Asaph. And we're going to kind of dive in and learn more about him and then see sort of his lament over the people. He has this sort of contemplative thoughts about God on this psalm. And so really we have one kind of central question that we want to answer today, okay? And here's the central question. What is the difference between lamentation and accusation, okay? What is the difference between lamenting, crying out from your soul to a God who cares, and accusation, where you begin to accuse God of wrong or accuse others of wrong. What is the difference? And we're going to see that in this psalm today. We're going to see sort of Asaph, this man, go through this process of lamentation and hopefully as a result kind of glean or learn a few things from him. So who, who is Asaph, right? Asaph was an author of 12 different psalms, right? He, the 12 psalms, I think it's Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through 83 are all written by Asaph, but there's a lot of debate to who this Asaph actually was. There's really two schools for Asaph. One is that there's this future man named Asaph, or it's one of the sons of Asaph that is actually writing this psalm. Because as you notice, as Paul was reading, there is this destruction of the temple that's happening. And many people think that it's Asaph, this future Asaph or the sons of Asaph kind of looking back. And so Asaph being sort of a pen name for this group of people. We see these sons of Asaph mentioned in Ezra chapter 3. I wrote some notes about it here. Um, Chapter 3 verse 10 says, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Remember, we're talking today about the temple has been destroyed. They have not got a chance to go into the temple and worship Yahweh, their God. And so they've been taken over by the Babylonians. They've now come back, and now the foundation is being laid, and they are pumped about it. All right? The builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. So Asaph's job was he was in charge of worship in the temple, right? He was assigned. We're going to see the original Asaph here mentioned in a second, um, but they were in charge of bringing worship. So, so John the Bickham would be like a son of Asaph for our church. His job would be to come into the house of God and to bring worship and praise. And so we see some of that worship and praise here. It says, um, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Woo! They are pumped. But they are excited. They're here to worship the Lord. We've been in captivity 70 years, plus the time it took us to rebuild. Now it's time to praise the Lord, right? And the sons of Asaph were the ones leading that worship. So one option when we look at our psalm is that this is written by these sons of Asaph after they return from the Babylonian exile. The second 
possibility is that this is the Asaph mentioned in the Bible, but he's writing a prophetic plea to God about something that is going to happen in the future because we see Asaph mentioned multiple times during the reign of David and Solomon. If we go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, um, we see in verse 17, so the Levites appointed Heman. Anybody remember Heman? Anybody have the under? Okay, never mind. Look at him. Heman, the son of Joel, and his brothers Asaph, the son of Baruchai. And so we see Asaph being sort of like the assistant director of music for the temple, okay? And so we see this man Asaph being, being in the temple, being writing different psalms, writing songs, kind of being a songwriter for Heman to be able to present to the people. We notice down in First Chronicles further, though, that there was a little bit more to Asaph. For example, look at First Corinthians or First Chronicles 25.1. David and the chief of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph, of Heman, and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres and harps and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work and of all their duties were, and they begin to list out these people that work. But did you notice it? That the sons of Asaph, the sons of him, when they were known for writing prophecy into their songs, that God was giving them visions of things and they were writing them into their music. We see in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30, and Hezekiah the king. Now, Hezekiah was a later king who, in fact, he might be the reason for the Babylonian invasion, not just because of all these kings and theirs, but Hezekiah actually invited the Babylonians, hey, come look in the temple. Look at all this gold. Isn't it cool? Yeah, really cool. And when the Babylonians came to power, where did they head? To fund their things. They, they headed to the temple. They tore the gold off of the temple. Reading 2 Kings 25, they just ripped all of it out of the temple and brought it back to Babylon, right? And so we see this sort of Hezekiah starting some of this, this planting this idea. But Hezekiah, um, the king and the officials, commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So it names Asaph as being this seer or this prophet that was writing these things in. Now, regardless, we don't know whether it was a future Asaph or this was the original Asaph that we learn about in the reign of David and Solomon. We don't know for sure, but here's what we know, right? That one of them wrote about this temple destruction that is to come. But as I was reading this week, I noticed myself kind of leaning towards one side, but it was because of my own thoughts. It was because of my own doubts. And I wanted to give you the warning that I think the Lord gave me. like, don't let your doubts become a lens by which you read the Bible. Don't let, don't let your way of thinking, like this couldn't have been a prophetic one. There's too many details in there. There's too many like details about how it was going to happen in there to be prophetic. Does God really know the future? Uh, yeah. Does God really know it in detail? Yeah. Does he tell men about it? Yeah. Sometimes, right? Because my tendency would be, oh, this has to be a later Asaph. It has to be because he says so many things that he had to have witnessed them to write them down. But yet God has given us this name of Asaph and said, hey, maybe he's warning his people. If you continue in your disobedience, this is what's going to happen. And he gives it in such incredible detail. You know, something that came up this week in my, my studies, do you realize how detailed God is? Do you remember this guy named Cyrus? 
Cyrus, right, the Persian who actually is the one who allowed the people to go back and to rebuild the walls and, and the things that happened in Ezra chapter 3, he allowed that through Ezra. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, this is 200 years before Cyrus was even born, all right? But here's what he says. He says this in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That Do you realize that 200 years before Cyrus, before Cyrus's mom thought, hmm, I wonder what I should name my child. 200 years before that, God named him. Before he became the commander, before he became the one that would set the, the Jews free to go back into their land and to rebuild, God knew his name. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God knows your name before the foundations of the world. Isn't that a beautiful thought? To be known by God and that he actually cares. Yes, God knows the future, right? And sometimes he tells us, about it. So regardless of which side on the Asaph debate you land, was it a future Asaph or the sons of Asaph, or was it Asaph writing prophecy? Here's what we know. God is faithful. And so as we jump into this, though, when we look at, for example, verse 1, you're going to see yourself teetering on this lamentation versus accusation edge, right? So look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 74. Oh God, why do you cast us forever? Why do your, does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pastor? Why? Right? He's crying out, why, God? I'm a sheep. I'm not smart. I stink. I'm just wandering around. Like, why does your anger come against us? Why are we being cast off by you? And so he's on the edge. He's like, am I going to dive into blaming God for the circumstances that I'm in? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been on that edge of like, you're just so frustrated, you don't know why, there's such confusion, and there's a tendency to want to blame God. And here's what we know, accusation always gives blame. That's what accusation does, right? It blames someone else for the problems or the issues that are going on in my life. If it's not another person, we sometimes blame God. Well, sometimes we blame ourselves. But here's the thing about lamentation. Lamentation always returns to faith. That as we pour out our heart to God, he fills in that space with a peace that transcends all understanding. You see, what accusation does is that we pour out our heart to God and we replace it with anger. And we let that anger burn through the things that we do. We're going to see here in this lament that Asaph turns back to God. He remembers things about God as he's pouring out his heart. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Here's what he's crying out. Lord, remember us. Remember. But notice what he says. The ones you have purchased. Remember us, the ones you have redeemed. We wouldn't be a people without God. We wouldn't be a people of his own possession if it hadn't been for the work of God in our lives. Can anybody say amen to that? Because I don't know about you, but I was not heading towards the cross. Maybe I was heading towards the cross like the thief. And my own sin and my own struggles to be crucified beside him. I wasn't heading towards grace and redemption, but God in his grace, 
began to renew my heart, renew my soul, and I was able to turn and, and bring him into my life, which you have been redeemed. You have been ransomed or purchased by God. Whew, isn't that a beautiful picture? Because, see, lamentation is this mourning that allows comfort to come in. Right? We allow the comfort of God. It's the, it's the idea of like when you're, if you've ever been in that position where you're just so um, upset, crushed, but then you pull the person in that you're upset at and just give that hug and you just cry through it. You just work through it. It brings you together. This is the idea of lamentation. Even though there's a wrong that's been had, you still pull one another in close in that tragedy where accusation is like, get away from me. Why do you want to come close to me? Why do you want to be near me, right? This idea of accusation is push away and blame instead of embrace and comfort. Which way do you want to live? Do you want to live a life of accusation? Because you have an opportunity every day, every day. You drive in Central Texas. Every day you have an opportunity to accuse, to let anger rule your heart. Or every day you have a chance to show grace and mercy and have peace and comfort surround us. I don't know about you. I choose option number two. Peace, comfort, not choose road rage, all right? So look what he says next, verse 3. Here's the reason for the lamentation. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in your sanctuary. God, your house, the temple, has been destroyed. Would you be sad if next Sunday you drove up and it was, the church wasn't even here? It had been burned down to the ground. Would that bring sorrow in your heart? It would for me because I'm in Africa going, help, <laughs> Somebody help. Something's going on, right? Would it be said? Yeah, so they see their, their temple. But it was even worse than that for them because they believe that God's presence, we have God's presence in our heart, right? We are the temple of God, right? We have, we have God's presence in us. They believe that God's presence was in the temple and that when the temple was destroyed, that their very faith in God, their very belief in the presence of God had been destroyed. And so the question for us as we go through this, which temple was being destroyed during this time that he's pointing towards? So let's look at verses 4 through 8 for some clues to the destruction that's happening. It says, your foes have, reared, have roared in the midst of your meeting place, and they set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. That the goal of these people were total destruction. Right? And we see there's really two options for this in, in history. One is in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. King Nebuchadnezzar the giant pickle in the VeggieTales, right? He came in and he came to destroy all of the people because of their rebellion against him, right? And he came in to take it over and to subdue the people, not to let a stone be there in place. In fact, we can read about it in Jeremiah. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 39, we see a glimpse into this destruction that's happening. Look what it says in verse 4. When Zedekiah, king of Judah... And all the soldiers saw them. They had just broke through the city wall, and the Babylonians are rushing in. And here is King Zedekiah's response. They fled. 
going out of the city at night by the way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went towards Arabia. And, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And they passed sentence on him. Ooh, it's fixing to get real right here. The king of Babylon, this is not what you're reading in Sunday school, by the way, okay? The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. And he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Woo! The reason we don't read this one in Sunday school. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar slaughtering the sons, pulling out the eyes of Zedekiah to bring him back as a prize to Babylon as he's taking over Jerusalem? Oh, this is the destruction that's being mentioned here in these verses. A future destruction in 70 AD happened where the temple was again destroyed. Herod's temple destroyed. And we see something very similar happening with the Romans charged through the gates. They burn. They don't let a single stone stay on top of the temple mount. They throw it all down in this total destruction where they try to destroy the people of God once again. But God kept a remnant all the way through. This is destruction that we see here in Psalm 74. We, and it was even worse than that for them because verse 9 says, and we do not see our signs there is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. That even though the building is gone, they feel the spiritual death. We no longer have guidance. We don't have anybody to lead us. They're feeling drifting among the, because they've been destroyed. What next? Where do you turn in this midst of feeling lost, feeling like the anchor has been pulled, to feel like you don't know where you're going? Where do you turn? How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. You remember last week, David's like, will you break their teeth out for me? Right? Remember when we asked them to box last week? Right? Asaph's going, Lord, take your hand out. Set us free. Wipe them away. Yet God is my king. And is from old. Do we turn back? And even though everything around us is in disarray, say, yet God is my king. Yet God is my Lord. Yet God is my Savior, right? Yet God is my king and is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Even in your trials, can you consider it pure joy? Now, listen, let's get real. It's hard, isn't it? When, have you thought about times in your life where you have had to just be broken and lament? Like when, when I think back of the times that I've just been broken down to tears, like I do have tear ducts. They have not been surgically removed, all right? Um, the time I can think about, I know exactly where I was. I was sitting in Rio Vista parking lot when my dad told, told me he was divorcing my mom. And I still remember he wanted to go for a drive and being stuck in that truck going, what do I do now? Do I jump out and walk home? Which is what I did. That lament, that, that thing, ever, the rug's been pulled out from under me. 
right? I remember sitting in the blue room, right, when getting lunch May of 2020, which getting to hang out with someone in May of 2020 was like special, right? But I remember sitting there with Jonathan Leftwich when he said, I'm going to be, I'm leaving to go to Rockport. And like, oh, like being crushed. Like, what? Uh, what do we do next? What, what's going to happen next? And I just remember, lost my appetite. Tears flow. Like, what, what is going to happen next? What are we going to do? What, what, and having all of these questions swirling around your head, the question is, where do you turn? Do you turn inward? Do you turn inwards to yourself or, okay, i got to solve this problem. i got to figure this out. Or do we turn to the Lord? When we were poured out, like a drink offering, do we let the Lord be the one to fill us where the Lord's like, hey, what I'm doing in your life, I'm going to work even through that tragedy. Through John the Leftwich leaving, right, we're going to work to reach more people for Jesus Christ. This is going to be something that is going to be good for us. Are we willing to turn to God? And I asked myself this question this week because um, we, we schedule sermons way in advance. Jayden let it out of the bag, right? We have scheduled sermons for a long time down the future. Um, I was asking, Lord, why this psalm this week? Like, why? Well, we've been through a lot of change as a church, haven't we? It's okay to mourn and lament people who have left to follow the call of God. It's okay to mourn those who have left to live closer to their grandchildren or or left to go to seminary in Houston or, or those in your life who have left for some reason. It's okay to mourn for them. But the question is, where do we turn? Where does our hope come from? It comes from the Lord, right? And we're gonna see that kind of playing out in Asaph's life today as he begins to turn towards God. He says, yet God is... The God, my king, and is from old, working his salvation in the midst of the earth. And then he starts listing off all the things that he's seen God do, all the things he's heard of God doing in his power. You divided the sea by your might. What was it for God to split the sea open? Was it difficult? Was God like, oh, hurry, guys, get through there? Or is God like, east wind, done? Right? Who broke the heads of the sea monsters? I mean, when do you get to preach on sea monsters? I mean, that's awesome, right? On the waters, who crushed the heads of Leviathan, you gave him as food for the creatures in the wilderness that God can crush even the monsters, even the sea monsters. We see Leviathan mentioned several different times. Psalm 27, verse 1, talks about this, this twisting dragon, sea dragon that the Lord slays. Job 41 describes him even more with like, His back was like shields laid over one another, but yet God crushes him. I know this dates me. Do you remember the little game you'd play? Like, you put people in, like, oh, I crushed your head. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that game? It was a really obscure game back in the day, right? (laughs) Okay. But you kind of look through, you're like, right? But to God, a sea sea monster, imagine a sea monster like this. This, like, dragon where boats are, like, nothing. It's like the Meg, right, from from the movies. It's huge, and then God's like, crushed. The biggest, the scariest, the craziest things you could even imagine in the world are God's footstool. The mountains, the guys are climbing the mountains in Colorado, and they're going to get to the top of the mountain, and they're not going to be like, I'm so awesome. They're going to get to the top of the mountain and go, whoa, God is really big, and I'm really small. Because when they look back down that trail, there's going to be Chad way back there. (laughs) I hope he's watching online, right? 
way back there in the back, right, coming up the trail, and like, little bitty, and then he's going to come up, right? Because when you get and you see God's majesty, what is our majesty compared to that? When, when you look at God in all of his glory, are we going to be like, yeah, but what about my glory? <laughs> no. we are be like, praise him, right? And that's what's happening here is he's like, what is it to you? You've done all these things. He says, you split open the springs and the brooks, and guess what? The world got flooded. Then you dried it up. Just like Elijah, three and a half years of no rain. What is it for God to flood the earth or to dry it up? It's nothing for him. Yours is the day. Yours is also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. God is the creator. What is time to him? He created the seasons. The stars proclaim the works of his hands. We were created in his image to bring glory to him. What is God the creator worried about? He's not worried about anything. He, all of this is in his control. And then Asaph makes his appeal to God. So he's praised him. You are powerful. You can make a difference. And he makes an appeal. And for us, this is a great model on how we should pray. Like if you are feeling in that, that pit of despair and you're feeling downtrodden, here's how we make the appeal to God. Look what it says in verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Here's the way he appeals to him. Lord, remember the glory of your name. Right? I follow in you, Lord. Remember me because I'm reflecting your name. Do this not for my sake, but for your sake. Now listen, have you ever thought about your circumstances? Instead of thinking about how your circumstance affects you, think about how your circumstance affects the kingdom of God. Have you thought of that? Because the quickest way to get out of addiction is not to keep looking inward, because guess what? Inward, there's more and more and more darkness. The key to addiction is looking outward. Lord, what do you want me to do? Like, for example, walking through depression and walking through darkness, the more time I spend alone, the worse it is. The more time I spend out thinking of others, serving others, the more joy God brings into that darkness because where I where I'm in darkness, I go to the light, right? So this idea here is, Lord, remember your name. Deliver, answer my prayer because this will bring glory to your name. Verse 19 says, do not deliver the soul of your, or do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Lord, remember, we're weak. We're poor. Lord, remember, we're sheep. We're just wandering around. Lord, we need a shepherd. And remember, God stepped out of heaven to become the good shepherd. That when one of us wanders away, he leaves the 99 to go get us. Remember that? So God came and lived a life we couldn't live to show us, hey, I'm with you. We're weak. We're poor. How many times do we just try to do it on our own strength? Pull up the, the boots, straps. That's what people say, I think. I don't even wear shoes, so I don't know much about these things. But right, just to suck it up and get it done, Right? Right? Instead, no, let's turn to God, Lord. Use the weaknesses in me to show your glory. Because, guys, when you see someone who's weak do something incredible, you know it wasn't them. You know it was God working through them. Don't be afraid of your weaknesses. Don't be afraid of your limitations. Because God, in the midst of that, will bring about glory and praise. And he says this in verse 20. Have regard for your covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of habitations 
of violence. He said, Lord, don't forget your covenant. Remember the covenant you made because all around me is violence, darkness, despair. I put my hope in you. Then he says this, and this is beautiful. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Woo, this is so good. We've been set free, haven't we? We sang about it earlier. We've been set free. Why turn back into shame? Shame, guilt, all those things are chasing us, but we've been set free. We don't have to run back into and hug on some shame real quick. We don't have to let guilt rule over us anymore. We've been set free from that. We are a new creation in Christ. When we give our life to Christ, the old is gone and new has come. This is the good news of the gospel. Lord, let us not run back into shame. Like, let me give you an example. How many of us this week have fallen short of the glory of God? Hopefully I'm not the only one. Okay, Whew. first service I was the only one. Okay, um, <laughs> I sinned this week, I fell short, right? Does that mean that shame and guilt should follow me or that I should just thank you, Lord, for your grace? Praise the Lord for the grace and the mercy that comes from Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's what it means to be free. Not that we use our, our free to do sin so that grace may abound. No, we want to live for the Lord, but we don't have to let shame and guilt roll over us. And then he sums it all up like this. He says, arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes and the uproar of those who rise against you which goes up continuing that we have a world who wants to scream out condemnation and shame and blame, but we have a God who gives us freedom. So, so I want to I share this with you in this way. I want to I summarize it a little bit um, for us as we look at it because, again, our main question is what's the difference between accusation and lamentation, right? And so here, here's what I think typically happens to us with accusation, all right? It says this, we pour out our hearts to others who feel the same way as we do. And here's one way you know you're in accusation, when you surround yourself with people that only think the way you think, because all of you want to cast blame together. Are you willing to hear from someone else that you're wrong? Woo! I know that just got real real quick, Okay. Do you have people in your life who are going to say, man, you need to stop. That's not the right way of thinking. That's not the way God wants you to think, right? We take our eyes off of God and remember all of our slights. Ooh, man, Danny, man, he, he's always just, he gives me this look. He gives me this side eye every time I walk in, right? right? We remember all of our slights. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, you do too? Oh, yeah. And we surround ourselves with people who have the same slights as us. Instead of having people go, He's a creation of God. He's a great guy. I know him. I love him. He's awesome. We tend to surround ourselves and isolate ourselves. And then what happens is we cry out and look to others for validation. But that validation turns toxic. When we surround ourselves only with people who have the same struggles and the same slights as we are, we tend to cast blame instead of look for an opportunity for righteousness, when in actuality, with lament, we need to take, pour out our hearts to God and make room for a new song of praise. Like, I listen to people that go through these incredible tragedies, and they, they somehow, through the midst of that tragedy, they praise the Lord. 
They say, Lord, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have known you as well. You listen to the voice of the martyrs, and you hear these people have gone through these tragic things inside of just persecution. Like, I wish I was back in the persecution because I felt God more than I ever have in my whole life. Whew, I don't know if I'm quite ready for that prayer. But I want to choose to, to lament and turn to the Lord. Or take, we take our eyes off of ourselves and remember what God has done. That's what we saw in this situation. The temple's been destroyed, but Lord, you have the power. You have the ability to do something about it. Or lastly, uh, we cry out and look to him for comfort because he's our redeemer. And in the midst of our trials, we consider it joy because the testing of our faith develops perseverance which must finish this work so we can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That if we really want to follow the Lord, we have to, even in the trials, trust God fiercely. So I want to encourage you, surround yourself with people who trust the Lord fiercely. That in the midst of your despair, they're going to bring you out to the light. They're going to show you the goodness of God in the midst of those trials. Right? If you end up in a situation that is not healthy, Find others to bring into that. Because, guys, I don't know if you know this, change is real, isn't it? Like in life, things change. People that you love move away. Your path group starts a new path group. That could be hard, right? Your church starts a new church. Those things can be hard. But when we trust in the Lord's plan over our own plan, then we can see him at work. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your work Lord, I thank you for this idea of lamentation. Lord, help us in the midst of our trials and our despair to turn to you, to not turn inside or turn to our own hope or our own strength, but, Lord, to turn into your strength. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room. Lord, some, some people in this room, Lord, are going through very hard things, the losses of friendship or losses of loved ones, Lord, or diagnoses that are difficult. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to put our hope in you and you alone. That when we speak the name of Jesus, that we'll let you come in and, and clean out our hearts so we can be right with you. Lord, I, I pray for myself and others, Lord, that we've, we've sinned this week, Lord. I pray that we won't let the shame and the guilt overwhelm us. That we won't let bitterness take root in our lives. We'll trust in you. So Lord, help us this week to live for you in all that we do. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, we are so glad um, that you came and worshiped with us today. Um, I hope you were blessed by the word and blessed by worship. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jayton. I'm the youth pastor here at Fellowship Church. I got a big crew over here waving. Hey, guys, it's good to see y'all. Um, it's good to see all of you, obviously, but, you know, just a special place in my heart over here with these students. Um, but we have a lot of things coming up with student ministry that I just want to talk to you about really quickly because, as you may know, summer is coming to a close. Before we know it, fall's going to be here. We're going to be kind of back into a regular schedule. Um, and there are some things coming up in Refuge, which is our student ministry, that I want you to know about. The first thing is this. August 2nd, which is a Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, we're going to be going to Schlitterbahn. And so we'll be gone all day if any of your students want to register for that. You need to be registered by July 30th. That's next Sunday. There is a QR code, a flyer out in the lobby that you can scan with your phone and you can register there and pay for your ticket and we'll get everybody going. But July 30th, that is the cutoff for registration and we will go on August 2nd to Slitterbond. 
Uh, we are having our back to school bash August 9th, which is a Wednesday, and we want to invite parents to that. If you're a parent or a guardian and you have a student in refuge, we are inviting you to our back to school bash. It's going to be a very special day. Um, there are some things that I just absolutely know we're going to do, and there are some things that are kind of dependent on these water restrictions that we have going on. And so hopefully that gets lifted. Hopefully we get to do all the things that I have planned, but we'll see. But parents, we want you to join us for that, and that, that will also be a day where you learn about what our fall is going to look like, what our curriculum is going to be, what we're going to be studying, some of the events we have going on, because um, we're going to keep going through the fall. We're going to keep chugging along. And then Sunday, August 13th, immediately following the third service, we are going to have a leader meeting. If you're interested in volunteering, if you've already shown interest, if you served last year and you want to keep serving, we're going to have a meeting Sunday, August 13th, where we're going to kind of go over what that looks like for the fall. And so if you're interested, please join us for those days. Um, we'll have all those dates up and available to you later on. But uh, that's what we have going on with Refuge. We hope that if you have any students, seventh grade through 12th grade, that you feel comfortable and bringing them up here. Let, let them take part in this amazing ministry that Jesus has just been using well before I got here, well before Chris was even a pastor. Jesus has been loving teenagers. And so we're going to keep facilitating that. And we're excited about it. But church, we're just... We're thankful for you. We're thankful that you love teenagers, that you support Refuge, and uh, we're just excited about what he's going to do. I want to close with Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, and it says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Church, I pray you take refuge in him this week. You're dismissed. I know there is peace within